Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. I think it's going to be a difficult year for making money. I mean, I think that's like in a nutshell, that's it. And so, I mean, it's it's going to be more volatile, right? I mean, the, the Fed is draining the punch bowl. The growth is slowing and we're sort of left with like, okay, like, you know, where will things end up? Uh, all right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Blonde Macro. You might know him from Fintwit. Mr. Blonde, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So I want to jump right into it. But before we do, I got to ask you, Mr. Blonde as a name, what is the background <laughs> for the pseudonymous identity? I got to know. Yeah, well, so look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Quentin Tarantino and his, and his movies, uh, you know, and, and, you know, when you think about personalities, Mr. Blonde was one of the first that came to, to my mind in terms of being the, um, you know, kind of straight talking, uh, you know, straight shooter, uh, which is, you know, kind of how I think about markets. Um, so that was kind of what, you know, what, uh, what inspired me, so to speak. For those of you who are there who are not uh, huge Quentin Tarantino fans, I also am one. That's a reference to Reservoir Dogs, which was his first one. Unbelievable movie. Um, so, right, if, if you haven't seen it, you definitely should. Yeah, no, it's, it is a great flick. I, mean, I also think that, you know, at least in my mind, there was some, uh, you know, reference to how we think about markets, right? I mean, the, the background of the story is, you know, a bunch of guys on a diamond heist, you know, trying to, uh, you know, you know, come together and, and, and make it work. And obviously you have a lot of different personalities, just like we have different personalities in the market. But at the end of the day, we're all focused on the same thing, right? Which is, you know, the bag of diamonds and, and the getaway. So um, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's reflective of, of how we operate and, and communicate with, within and across markets as well. All right. Uh, so you prepared a really great uh, slide deck uh, here. And basically what the, the kind of concept that I want to start out with uh, is I, I know you've talked a lot about this idea of the Fed uh, tightening into a slow growth environment. So you put together a slide here. Uh, for those of you who are not um, following us on video, we've got a macro growth composite on the left, um, and we've got macro growth composite inputs on the right. So we're looking at earnings growth leading indicator, global manufacturing PMI, and U.S. earnings revision revision breadth. So can you just explain to us what are these two charts? Why do you put them here? Yeah. So, you know, look, I mean, I, I think taking a step back, I mean, even before we talk about the, the Fed aspect of, of things, I mean, you know, a big part of my framework is to identify and think about um, the growth regime, right? And when I say growth, I, I'm just talking about sort of just generic nominal growth. Some people refer to that as GDP. Some, you know, I, I tend to think about it more in the context of profit growth because that's what drives, um, you know, equity markets uh, more than more than GDP. Um, but you know, in order to to in order to have a view on that, you have to define it, uh, and th and this is sort of my version of that, or you know, my definition of that. And and you know, the inputs are, um, you know, I have them labeled here as long, medium, and short. Uh, and, and basically, you know, my earnings growth leading indicator is something I consider to be my long leading indicator. It kind of tells me what, what's going to happen, you know, kind of 12 months from now or 12 to 18 months from now. Uh, you know, global PMIs, manufacturing PMIs, I, I think of as being a little bit more of a medium term indicator, you know, kind of are telling you about the, the environment over the course of the next three to six months. Uh, they tend to be very highly um, autocorrelated. So once they start moving in, in a given direction, they keep moving in that direction uh, for, for a period of time. And then reversion, revision breath is, is your sort of shorter term, you know, kind of weekly or daily, you know, measure of, of you know, kind of how are aggregate sell side analysts, you know, bot, you know, changing their bottoms up numbers. Are they, are they taking numbers up? Or are they taking numbers down? Um, you know, and, and, and all of these are, you know, rate of change measures, which, 
you know, ultimately are what matter for, um, you know, the, the more cyclical, you know, parts of the market. Um, and so, you know, th this particular slide or, or chart is just sort of my definition of growth. Wh where are we today and, and what is the direction of that growth? Um, and then obviously, you know, like anybody else, I mean, we sort of make, you have some kind of judgment about, you know, where is that headed? Uh, the leading indicators help to, um, you know, define that for me. And then, you know, obviously, um, you know, you, you know, like anybody else, you kind of have some leading indicators of your leading indicators to kind of, you know, help, um, you, you know, you foresee where, where things are, are headed. So, I mean, that's kind of, that's what this is. And that, that defines the, 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 you know, the, the growth environment. And then obviously the Fed is another aspect um, of markets, which I can elaborate on if, if, if that's you know, what, you, what you want me to do at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So just one clarifying question here. So looking at these charts, you kind of see these peaks and valleys, right? Looking at the left, this macro mm -hmm. growth composite. So leaning indicators, just basically, is the economy in growth mode or is it in uh, deflationary or shrinking mode? It looks like uh, you're saying that growth peaked in May of 2021. Am I reading that correctly? And then B, walk me through kind of how the Fed factors into this, uh, you know, into your growth outlook. Yeah, exactly. So basically what the, what you, you, you hit the nail on the head. And I think what, you know, what I would say is you have, you have the peaks and the troughs and sort of like, you know, the, you know, the extreme highs and the extreme lows. And then there's, you know, the in-between. So I, I kind of think of the market as being, or your growth regimes as being into four quadrants, right? Either you're uh, in recovery, meaning you're coming from a trough and you're rising to that, you know, kind of zero line or the horizontal line, or you're in expansion, meaning you're above that zero line and rising to the peak. Um, and then you're in slowdown, which is you've peaked and you're falling towards that zero line. And then, you know, some measure of contraction, which is you're, you know, kind of um, below zero and falling, right? If you want to think of, you know, think of it as a, a matrix in, in that sense. So, yeah, I, I see um, you know, growth or growth rate of change peaked, you know, sometime last spring, like the specific date is not as important as the, the general date, but, you know, sometime last spring and we've been decelerating or slowing since then, you know, I, I call it, you know, kind of growing, but slowing. I want to look uh, like in a little bit more detail at some of these leading indicators, right? So what we've got highlighted here is U.S. earnings growth and we've got global PMI. So you just walk through like why these are two really important inputs into your cyclical growth outlook. When it comes to growth and growth rate of change, you know, I, I generally care less about the level or the magnitude and I'm focused more on the direction, right? You want to get turning points, right? You want to know where, uh, you know, again, it comes back to the idea of, of growth being autocorrelated and that once it starts moving in a given direction, it kind of keeps moving in that, in that direction for some extended period of time. Extended period of time can be six, 12, 18 months. You know, it's a little bit like Newton's law, right? An object in motion stays in motion until acted upon by an equal and opposite force. Um, and so, you know, that's what, that's what's, in, that's, what's important here. And, you know, the, the earnings growth leading indicator, you know, is really kind of just another form of, you know, it wouldn't really be that different than, you know, other forms of leading indicator. You're taking market, um, and economic inputs that have historically, you know, tended to lead the profit cycle and you're just organizing them and aggregating them into, you know, kind of one, uh, measure. This is just, you know, how I, you know, I tried to have a, you know, you know, it's important to be the best you can be unemotional when you, when you approach markets and, and kind of have a framework and a discipline that that kind of um, or a roadmap if you if you want to call it that that's kind of how I refer to it and so this is one measure of that and this tends to be the longer you know um, longer in duration right I mean you can see from the the dates that I marked in the chart there those are you know past periods when the leading indicator peaked and you know then you think about what did markets do over the course of the next 12 to 18 months oftentimes somewhere in that window period you sort of end up in a more difficult 
um, challenging, volatile environment. And that's a function of, you know, think of profit growth as being sort of the oxygen for markets. And if you start to take the oxygen out, then, you know, some things will be, you know, kind of choked off if you want to use that analogy. You know, the PMI indicator is kind of the same thing. It's just a, it's a little bit more of a shorter term, you know, kind of window. And so I use PMIs to sort of, you know, as a little bit more of a trigger, meaning, you know, you, you, know, you, you know the profit growth is likely to be weak because that's what the, the longer leading indicator, you know, tells you. Um, and then, you know, when PMI start to roll, you know, that kind of tends to be the, okay, I need to pay much, you know, I need to pay much closer attention to this now and start, you know, kind of positioning your portfolio for this and, and moving in that direction with a little bit more, you know, a, a little bit more of a sense of urgency because, you know, there's also a pretty, I have a chart later in the deck or whatever that, that we could look at, but if, you know, historically PMIs tend to also be pretty correlated with profit growth. So that's just a little bit more of like the trigger that, hey, this is now, you know, kind of confirmed. Um, and it also will tend to be the thing that the market um, sees more clearly. So to, to sum things up to, um, you know, for viewers who might not be watching us on video, when you're looking at the earnings growth leading indicator, it's a multi-factor model, right? So you've got some inputs listed out here, ISM new orders, U.S. consumer confidence, trade weighted U.S. dollars, triple B credit spreads, oil prices. Mm -hmm. We're going to get into some of those indicators and, and, and why they're included. Um, but I, you know, I, what, what I wanted to take a look at um, is, is this next slide. So this macro growth composite and what you're looking at, too, here, at least the, the chart on the right is you've got the macro growth composite mapped over uh, 10 year yield minus uh, the 12 month average. Right. So yep. walk me through why, you know, what the relationship here is specifically. Like, I would just love to know, like the, the, the growth composite and I guess yields in, in general. Nominal growth and the rate of change in nominal growth tends to be um, pretty important for understanding, thinking about, and forecasting um, the the likely trajectory or momentum uh, within markets and across markets. And so, um, what the chart shows specifically is just that when when growth is decelerating, you'll tend to see that there's a little bit you know less momentum, if you want to call it that, or that you know the it, the speed limit of markets starts to um, to change. It doesn't mean that yields can't go up. And then obviously, you know, like the Fed is all, you know, a, a totally other, you know, kind of separate, right. you know, part of this. You know, think of this as a little bit as like all else equal. But if you, if the speed limit of markets, you know, can kind of start to, um, to slow down, meaning that, you know, you, you know, markets will kind of converge to their, um, trend lines, so to speak. And then, you know, eventually you, you, you know, you, you touch the trend line or in this case, like the 12 month average, or think of it as like 200 day average. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately if the growth, you know, if growth continues to decelerate, then you're going to slip below that. So, you know, I, rather than 10 year yields, you know, if I use something like cyclicals versus defensives, like over the last year, um, or basically, you know, from this time a year ago, that ratio is basically flat. So even though we've had, you know, quote unquote, good economic growth, and level of growth rates and all of these other things that have been cited over the, over the last year, you have not been rewarded for taking higher beta cyclical risk versus lower mm -hmm. beta defensive risk, right? Basically that, that ratio, the performance between those two buckets you know, or segments of the market has been equivalent. And I, you know, to me, that just indicates, you know, you, if you can generate the same return from a lower beta you know, kind of less cyclical part of the market, then that's a that's a more robust portfolio, all else equal, right? I mean, it's, you know, think of it as like a risk-adjusted return, you know, kind of, um, you know, framework. So that's a little bit of, of, of what this is designed to to um, to show. And it's really just, you know, 
proof of concept, right? I mean, does does the you know does the macro growth composite signal and tell me what I think it is signaling and telling me, and this is just a way of measuring that versus tangible day to day you know kind of market moves um, and trends. I want to get into some of the work that you've done in looking at previous Fed tightening cycles. So. Yeah. You know, you've actually broken it out here by slow tightening cycles, fast tightening cycles, and non-cycles, right? And you've kind of got this black black average bar here in general. Yeah. You've also broken it out by um, kind of different sector. Uh, so the S&P, cyclicals, defensives, and then like a whole bunch of different energy, software, household, real estate, et cetera. And what you're looking at is, you know, returns, you know, before the Fed started hiking and then after, yeah. right? Um, so the idea here is basically for, at a high level is how do assets typically tend to perform stocks in, in general perform during Fed tightening cycles? Obviously, you've broken it out into a much more nuanced way than that. But if you could walk us through what this data is showing us here. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's this tendency that, you know, at least I see in the market, you know, um, a lot of times, like when we get to one of these events, you know, um, you know, people will say like, oh, you know, they'll, they'll take like whatever the last five or six Fed cycles and say, oh, look, the, you know, the market's going up, like everything's fine. And, 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 and I, I get it, but I, I feel like that often hides a lot of the nuance and the importance about, you know, that, um, you know, each cycle, you know, this is falls into the bucket of, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it often rhymes, right? Like it, it won't be, it won't be perfect, but I think it's also important to um, categorize things. So, you know, again, I, I'm a big, my focus t you know, tends to be on regimes, right? And regimes are, you know, uh, you're trying to classify the market into different buckets. And, you know, you, you want to be as narrow as you can be, um, but, you, you know, you kind of have to have a, you know, reasonable sample size. I mean, one of the biggest challenges with, with Fed cycles in general is that, you know, we're typically only really working with like a handful of episodes, right? I mean, if you only went back to like, you know, if you started from 1985, you're only really talking about like, you know, four or five, you know, kind of Fed cycle, you know, type things, right? It's just a small sample size. So the purpose of this work is to, you know, to go back further and then also to, um, you know, to kind of look at different um, types of Fed cycles, right? And, 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 you know, usually what happens in markets is if, if things are slow and methodical, um, then markets digest it you know, pretty easily, right? Because that, that information is not, you know, there, there's less of a surprise. If things are, are moving at a quicker pace or, or coming at the market fast, it creates a source of uncertainty and, you know, it's, it's just a little bit harder to digest. And I think that that's kind of what the, 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 the line chart there shows. I mean, my definition of fast cycles, um, and, you know, look, you can say all these things with hindsight. So um, this is, is not about being predictive as much as just, you know, defining, you know, environments or regimes, but fast cycles were basically where either you had like a, you know, a 50 basis point rate hike out of the gate or more, um, and, or in the first year you had, you know, kind of north of 200 basis point, um, uh, 200 basis points of tightening. And you know, what it shows is that those, those cycles tend to be more difficult for markets than if you had a, you know, slow cycle, which is, you know, kind of your more traditional, 25 basis points, you know, kind of a meeting or like, you know, 150 basis points a year type thing. Um, and, you know, like, like, I think if we look over the last, you know, whatever, let's call it, you know, five months, um, you know, the, in the last couple months in particular, it felt, it's, it's, it's felt like a fast cycle, right? I mean, the, the market has like been forced to like, oh, like crap, like we're going to have to, we might have to hike 50 basis points in March. Like the, the dynamic has changed pretty quickly from one that was like, oh, you know, rate cycles are, you know, no big deal to one like, oh, now they have to move pretty quickly. Mm. 
And then the table on the right, and you know, we can get into this later. I mean, there's a whole bunch, there's a whole post that has a lot more information on this and gives some more detail, but you know, the table on the right is, is really the just, you know, kind of goes back to what we said, you know, at the outset, which is, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple different ways that you can tighten financial conditions. One is, you know, uh, a, a natural tightening of financial conditions because your know, growth is slowing. And then the other form is, you know, the, you know, the Fed's version or the Fed induced version of that, which, you know, is them kind of raising the cost of capital, which then, you know, kind of narrows that spread that you have between whatever your business return is. Right. And as that narrows, then it means you have less funds to reinvest in the business and that should slow activity, um, you know, in that way. And this is really just to kind of show that, like, when the Fed, right, like when the Fed is tightening, it's common for, you know, sub, you know, subsequent to that for growth to slow. Like, I mean, that's kind of the purpose, right? I mean, like they're raising rates in order to lean against um, activity in order to um, either normalize things or, you know, kind of bring things into, you know, some kind of balance or equilibrium. You, they want to, you know, slow down an overheated you know, economy, um, or they're, you know, fighting and, you know, an inflation, you know, issue. But, um, this is the, you know, kind of part of this, the, the table is really just identifying you kind of how you want to think about, um, capital allocation, um, through the cycle. And it's, you know, like, it's not going to be perfect every time. Like, you know, it's just, you, I tend to focus a little bit more on the hit rates than I do on the magnitude of returns. But, um, just as you're thinking about, um, you know, where you put the incremental dollar or, or how you want to think about you know, how you position your equity portfolio. Um, this is the summary of that. See, I'm not sure what the Fed funds futures are pricing anymore at this point, but you know, at one point they were pricing in, you know, it's pretty, got pretty crazy there. It was like a hundred percent chance of a, a 50, a 50 basis hike uh, starting in March and then, mm -hmm. you know, eight or something over the course of uh, 2022 in general. I don't know where that is post Ukraine, uh, Russia. And you know, I'll always caveat this by saying, you know, whenever we talk about war, especially on the context of on, within on the margin or in general, it is first and foremost a humanitarian crisis, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm not a geopolitical strategist. I don't think you're probably a geopolitical strategist. So when we talk about it on the show, it's not going to be from the humanitarian angle, not because that's not the most important thing, but just because that's not within the area of expertise for what we're mm -hmm. talking about right now. But, uh, you know, my, my, I guess my question to you is with some of the events that are going on, right now right like so ukraine russia right there's a lot more uncertainty in the world mm -hmm. um you know do you think we were headed towards one of these fast cycles but then that might be changing for the fed uh especially with energy prices rising the way they are like what has has, has have any of the recent events of the last couple of weeks changed your mind about the regime that we're in in terms of these tightening cycles um i would say i would say probably not yet although you know so uh, you know if i were to take a, a step back like even before the events in, in Eastern Europe, my view would have been that, you know, the Fed will certainly, you know, um, start, try to start fast. I just, I'm, I'm not sure how far they're going to get because, you know, I have a view that, you know, the second derivative of growth is slowing. And so, you know, by the time we get to summer or the fall, I think you'll see a little bit, you'll, it'll be more clear that, um, you know, growth was was already on a slowing path, and so uh, I, I would caveat that a little bit. But I, you know, irrespective of that, I think that yeah, we we probably were on a on a quicker path in that, um, or at least in in the context of the you know their reaction function had changed very quickly from where it was, let's say, you know, kind of August September of last year, um, you know, and kind of like you know, moved in a in a quicker you know in a you know, sort of started to 
to kind of pivot, you know, um, more significantly November, December. And then as we turn the year, it, um, you know, it felt like the market really, you know, grabbed hold of that. Like, as you, as you said, you know, um, yeah, we were, you know, 95%, you know, nearly 95% priced for a 50 basis point, you know, rate hike in March. I mean, it's been a long time since we had a 50 basis point, you know, move. And so that's, you know, that's not insignificant. I think that there's two ways to look at the, the, you know, what's happened as a, as a function of, you know, Russia, Ukraine. And, you know, this is like, you're thinking about it from the, the mindset of a Fed policy person, right? Like, the U.S. economic, like, direct um, impact, you know, in terms of trade or, like, you know, GDP, like, to Russia and Ukraine is, is really small, right? Like, there's, these are not, like, this is not a, in that sense. Now, but, so, like, if you think about it from, like, an economist, they're going to look at the math and say, like, oh, well, this is, like, not really a, not an issue from, you know, um, impacting our economy. The bigger issue is the, you know, financial market, um, you know, and in that, you know, the confidence, like, you know, transmission mechanism and how it Im- impacts confidence. But I don't know, it's pretty tricky. I mean, if you look at consumer confidence measures, they were already pretty weak and the Fed was still talking about hiking rates. Um, you know, I, I suppose that if we, if we saw, you know, come May or June, um, that, you know, the, the delta in, you know, some, you know, economic, you know, activity measures, whether it be PMI or otherwise, were to, you know, have a sharper move lower, uh, and, we, and we saw, you know, continued volatility in capital markets, um, that would definitely give the Fed some pause. I, but the flip side of it, and, and what's quite different from, you know, any rate cycle in the, you know, frankly, in the last uh, 20 years is that, you know, inflation, core inflation is running north of 5%. Right. So ultimately, they, they kind of need to be confident or to see, you know, I think clear and tangible evidence that that's coming off before they can really, you know, pivot in any meaningful direction. And I think that that sort of is the part that's like, quote unquote, different this time when we think about Fed cycles, you know, most other Fed cycles, they have they have been hiking um, because they've wanted to, not because they've needed to. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. I have seen you post this chart on Twitter. We've actually talked about it on the show as well. Is one of the narratives around, okay, Fed is... You know, Fed funds rates are pricing in eight hikes this year or whatever it is at the current day. 
this was similar to a previous period of time, right? It was end of 2018, beginning of 2019. That's the, the period famously known as the Powell pivot, where Powell tried to hike rates, and then he famously had to, uh, you know, the market threw up, essentially, and he, he pivoted, right, to a more dovish stance. The, folks, that, that's exactly what's going to happen now, because in, in addition to, you know, just an enormous amount of strain in the economy in general, you also, the world has gotten more levered to lower interest rates. So if anything, the economy is even less able to sustain the rate hikes that the Fed is trying to, to do. So, you know, with the obvious caveat that to your point, we we do have 5% core inflation at the current time, right? That might start to get alleviated, but might not. Um, do you think that we're going to see a return of the Powell pivot or are they going to move ahead with these rate hikes? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So let's let's talk about the, the 2018 analog chart that has gotten you know, pretty popular. So, look, I, when I think of that um, period, uh, well, there, you know, I, I guess there's two things. One is you know, I started to talk about the idea of the Fed hiking into a slowdown, you know, back in September of last year. And, it was, you know, 2018 was one of the analogs. The other possibility was that it was you know, akin to late 2015. And if you think of late 2015, you had, um, you know, you know, China was a bigger source of, of concern at the time. Um, you know, you had a big, you know, um, adjustment in Chinese currency and you had, you know, China had its own credit impulse thing. But these are just, you know, basically, you know, sort of external sources of, of weakness, um, you know, and that the, the Fed may or may not, you know, I mean, of course they know, but they're sort of left in this, you know, environment where they, they kind of, you know, have become a little bit more reactive um, to economic conditions as opposed to proactive. Um, the analog, though, I, you know, it's 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 worked exceptionally well, um, and, and maybe you know it says something about reflexivity, right? And that you know people see something, and then you know as it gains you know attention, it you know kind of becomes um, the reality uh, because we we think that it's 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 likely um, or possible, right? Uh, I think of the pattern as being more just reflective of like a typical or you know, um, you know, reflective of trader psychology and the pattern that, you know, you usually have around a correction, which is you have an initial shock. In this case, it was the realization that the Fed was going to have to go faster until we get the like seven to 10 percent kind of correction in January. And then you have the, you know, then, you know, once you have that, you know, kind of surprise event, then you go through a period of digestion or, you know, there's a little bit more of a two way risk period where it's like, Okay, it won't be that bad. You know, like you, you, people start fighting back a little bit. You know, kind of the buy the dip, you know, mentality that it won't be that bad, or like they're hiking because you know growth is good, and so you have the market fighting back. But there's this, it's like liquidity reduction. So you're sort of left with like, well, it's not, it's not that bad, but it's not great either, and you you go back and forth, and then ultimately that's, you know, then you know, and we're not at this point yet, but this is, I think, what you're alluding to is like then you have the you know, the last phase or the, you know, what could be a final phase of a correction um, where, you know, some other event, you know, presents itself or some other piece of information, you know, presents itself. And then that's sort of where you have like kind of a final um, move down and, and it's, you know, kind of the acceptance phase, right, of, a, of, you know, if you think of like stages, you know, and, and that acceptance phase would be, in this case, would be, oh, crap, like you are hiking into a, a gross slowdown um, now, I think what you're asking about is like, okay, well, ultimately Powell pivoted in that scenario. And right. you know, then from January into you know, March and, and April of, of 2019, we had a pretty um, you know, punchy rally. 
I'm, I'm hesitant to assume, uh, look, I, these analogs, like, they're useful because they kind of give you um, a conceptual framework and, you know, and all the rest, but, you know, ultimately, they, they all eventually break down, right? I mean, the, the, you know, at some point, they're going to diverge. You know, markets are not, you know, um, they don't, you know, they typically don't follow tick for tick for, you know, an extended period of time. At some point, something else will, will be, you know, this is the history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, right? So something will diverge. Mm -hmm. I would guess that like if, if, if it played out to the downside, I, I mean, as I said about inflation, my sense is it's a little bit harder to imagine that the Fed can really pivot um, like they did in 2018. You know, partly because like this cycle is, you know, the Fed tightening cycle this time around is, is much, we're in the early stages of it, where in 2018 we're in the later stages of it. Um, and inflation to me feels like it's a little bit of a, you know, it handcuffs them a little bit. It's a little bit harder um, to do that. I mean, even if inflation was coming off a little bit, if they pivoted um, with inflation running, core inflation running north of 4% and you kind of like kickstart another, you know, growth cycle, then where's inflation going to be a year from now if we right. start at four? And that, I think that's a, that's a, that's a more challenging, um, you know, that's a more challenging you know, dynamic. Now, look, that being said, if, if, if the economic activity was weak enough, then ultimately, you know, they probably do, um, they probably do back off. I kind of think what will happen is that the economic data will be weak enough and the market can you know, probably um, reduce the probability of some future hikes, which gives the Fed some space. And it just gives them the ability to kind of operate in, in you know, kind of less from you know, a behind the curve standpoint, a little bit more, um, you know, that maybe they can skip a meeting here or there, that type of thing, as opposed to the market kind of like applying the pressure, like you, you need to go now and you need to go quickly. Um, yeah. So, I, but you know, like, look, I, I, when I, when I think about you know trading and risk taking, like, I, I try not to think too far ahead uh, when it comes to these things because you know I'd like to see how it plays out through March before deciding whether he's going to actually pivot, um, you know, and and we kind of get that rebound. I, I think that um, I'd like to, you know, um, get through the bad part first and then decide whether there's you know scope for the for the good part. Here, here's my internal framework, I guess, for how the Fed raising rates would reduce inflation. It raises the cost of capital. So in theory, people would want to put, you know, they'd, they'd move out in the same way that QE pushed people out along the risk curve, it would bring them back along the risk curve and move them into bonds. Uh, I, again, just on that, you know, we were kind of talking about this with weighted average cost of capital here is there really a gigantic i don't think it unless you're predicting that the 10-year goes to five or six percent which then i could actually see that making a difference and tempting a lot of people into that it's just hard to imagine a world where the u.s economy can sustain five percent or six percent rates on the 10-year i don't even think we've i don't know when the last time we've, we've seen those rates but it's certainly been a number of years and we're in a different world post-covid the other the other way that i think about it is that it just causes a recession and therefore destroys demand you know that that's a that's a pretty blunt policy instrument. I don't think the Fed would come out and say that for obvious reasons because they're not going to say, "Hey, we're causing a recession because at least that's better than inflation." Even if that's the truth, a lot of people would be pretty upset about that, right? So when I look at what are the causes of inflation today, I know I I, I actually I'm kind of torn about this because on, on the one hand they've certainly eased monetary conditions an enormous amount, but it's this weird way through quantitative easing where it's not like they're just printing money and giving it out. So it's inflated financial prices, but it hasn't really probably led to like consumer goods inflation. And honestly, 
when we got consumer goods inflation, that's when they actually did give the money out, right? So maybe that's like a good example. Really, so, but there probably is something there, right? They've, they've eased money too much and that probably is something to do with what's happening right now. But really, a lot of this is just supply chain driven in general, right? Like that, I, I feel like that's what's happening in the, at least in the immediate term. We shut down the entire world for two years. It takes a while to get it back up. And in the meantime, they created an enormous amount of demand driven, you know, just demand in the economy. So this is all my rambling way of asking, is the Fed raising rates because that's politically expedient? Because they don't, because if they aren't seen as doing something, then it's just extremely damaging to their careers and the, the credibility of the institution. Or do you actually think that raising rates even by you know, 2%, is that actually going to help? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, like, look, there's some truth to this. I mean, I think like the Fed becomes a little bit of the whipping post in this scenario, and that like right. you know, they they weren't the ones who decided to treat the economy like a light switch and close it for a few weeks, and then say like, oh, and then we'll just turn it back on, and everything will be fine. And obviously, like, there was this you know panic moment in spring of 2020 because you know the the, the degree of uncertainty was exceptionally high, and so you know, politician like Congress in conjunction with the Fed said if we're going to if we're going to make this decision to close the economy we need to like you know pump all of this money into the system right and liquidity in the into the system because you know you had dysfunctional markets so i i don't think that you know i don't really fault the fed or politicians you know for the decisions that they made at the time i think the mistakes were made subsequent to that mm -hmm. um the fed i think you know, and like, yeah, and maybe it's a you know unfortunate circumstance, but you know, remember the Fed in like you know summer of 2019 had kind of like changed their, you know, policy, you know, to to be focused on like, okay, well, we're gonna like you know future inflation target, you know, uh, average inflation targeting, right? Like they had made some of these decisions, um, to to try to um, you know, um, take a different approach because the approach that they had been using they felt like had not been working. And then along comes COVID and all these other things. And, and that um, they didn't adjust, I don't think, quickly enough to that new information and and kind of the, you know, and, and how the economy would would react and respond to that. I, you know, you know, kind of like you said about geopolitical issues, like I, I don't want to get into like the the political, you know, sensitivities around COVID, but I'm not really sure COVID and what happened then was even really a recession as much as it was like a natural disaster. Um, right. And you, you know, you, you like, you, you know, if you look at MBER, they say that we had a two month recession. I mean, like, well, what is a two month recession? Like, that's kind of ridiculous. It's like, doesn't even really, you know what I mean? It, it was more like a hurricane. Sense. Yeah, it was more like a hurricane hit. It, it, it shut things down for a period of time because you couldn't go outside or whatever. And then, and then, and then it left a bunch of collateral damage and response to that, like, and using the hurricane analogy, insurance companies are cutting you checks to, you know, to rebuild your house or to, you know, to do the things that, you know, that you have, you know, put in. Um, but in that process, mm -hmm. like you end up with, to your point, like when you, when we shut production or we curtailed production and saying that, okay, well, you can only have like 25% of your workforce, like making stuff. But at the same time, you were sending people checks to buy stuff. And so you, know, you basically, you know, you slid the supply curve down and you, you know, you push the demand curve, you know, demand curve up. And so as a result, um, you know, you had, a, you know, this really strong, um, you know, push in, in activity. So I, I kind of think of it as we overstimulated, which, you know, kind of then, you know, overstimulated in the context of what our supply, in, you know, environment or, you know, production capacity was. 
I think that was a bigger portion of the inflation drive. But I mean, I guess like the flip side is like the Fed has kept rates for, for low for a long period of time. Like it's not new. Um, sorry, long-winded way of saying it. I think the mistake is that they, they have treated policy as being a little bit more black and white instead of like on a, on a continuum. And when I say a continuum, I mean like they, they, they could have started the process of unwinding hyper-accommodative policy after we had the vaccine announcement, you know, say in the first quarter of last year. And I think that if they, if they had done that, we would be in a better, easier place today. But like, this is like the policy decision. Either you go early and slow or late and fast, right? When mm-hmm. you think about their decisions and, and they, they kind of chose late and fast purposely. <laughs> and I think that, you know, in an, in an academic world, you, when you, when you look at like, you know, when you look at that way, you're like, oh, like we can do this, no big deal. The, the, I think the challenge is, is that in, in, in practice, it's a lot harder to pull off than, than it is in theory. And I think that that's kind of what we're, what we're dealing with. Do, do I think that the Fed is like the solely responsible? No. But, you know, listen, if you take your know, rates down and, and all of a sudden, you know, if, you're, if your previous like mortgage rate environment was 4% and now it's, you know, 2.5%, like, you know, and, and, and people don't, you know, are, are not out of a job or like don't, don't feel scared or they've been given other funds, then you're going to have, you know, the market is, is going to find a place to like deploy that liquidity and it's going to be, you know, drive up prices. So it, you're right. A lot of it is like in the good sector, but, the, you know, I mean, home prices are up a lot um, and you know, it's a pretty big sector and it's been, you know, pretty important in, in the context of, you know, U.S. economy. And then I think also this is also something and then I'll let you ask your, your next question, but like this is also something that's categorically different than the post 2008 period. Right. This is a period where home prices are going up. Um, and that, I think, is a pretty important aspect of like inflation expectations. Right. Because it's like you know probably one of the most important things that most households will be um, spending on, whether it's rent or mortgage payment. Right. Um, you know, things like food prices and energy prices come and go. But I think the housing piece you know, can be a, 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 an important, critical driver for inflation expectations and, and would be the type of thing w- that, that people would demand higher wages for, right, in a, in a more meaningful way, because it's you got to live somewhere. We talk a lot about, on the show about housing in general. And the reason I think it's so interesting is, one, it's obviously a gigantic center, uh, sector, but two, it's kind of part of the social contract in America, home ownership. We have decided as a society that's a good thing. That's why we not only allow but encourage people to essentially lever themselves up and buy a gigantic financial asset, right? Which is a home. <laughs> yeah. uh, home, is, home is kind of a different than a stock. You can't live in a stock. <laughs> you can live in a home. Uh, it's also, it's kind of that first step to financial freedom as well, right? Because if you want to start a business, you know, it, like you can, you can tap your kind of home, home equity. Uh, you can use it as collateral. Uh, also, homes tend to go up, right? Land and, and property tends to increase in value. So I think in the U- U.S., it's a huge percentage of the average person's net worth, right? It's like 80% or 85%, something like that. So housing is a bit of a funny one because when you look at something like commodities, in general, I feel like people want commodities to be lower, right? If you're not speculating mm-hmm. on them. To your point before about just this is just an input cost, all else being equal, you know, the cure for high prices is high prices in mm-hmm. commodities because that it kind of destroys demand. Housing is maybe a little bit different because you you don't actually want it to go down, but you want it to be affordable at the same time. Yeah. You know what I mean? You no, almost want it to right. like thread that needle because 
if it goes down, then that's really good for some people because uh, you can buy it on the cheap and then you can improve your financial freedom. But if you already own homes, the boomer generation, then you're screwed because yep. you just lost an enormous percentage of your net worth. Well, and remember, in most, it's, a, it's on leverage. So something that right. falls in price on leverage is, is, is a bad outcome for you know, everybody, right? Exactly, exactly. So you know, housing prices over the course of the last year have just gone bananas. And that's starting to translate into like renting, right? Mm -hmm. In New York, I mean, prices are absolutely bananas right now. So, I mean, how do you, what's your overall framework for looking at the importance of the housing market? Do you see it as being something that the US government is actually trying to, you know, strategically important to keep up or down? I mean, I mean, just what's, what's your framework for looking at this market? My framework tends to be a little bit more cyclical in nature. So like, I don't, I don't, you know, but I'll share some things that, that I think yeah, about. Right. I mean, I think in, in general, I mean, I think they want housing to be like the preference would be like that it's stable and in a rising trend. Right. Right. And I think like, and, and you, you're on the slide here. I mean, I think the risk is that in the last, you'll call it two years, we've moved into a um, unstable rising trend. Right. Mm -hmm. And when I say it's unstable rising trend, like, so what I'm with the chart on the right that I'm, I'm, I'm sharing with you is all the different, um, permutations of the, the S&P 20 cities that they track. And what it shows is that um, every you know, kind of major city in the US, prices have gone up by a similar amount and in the same you know, kind of trajectory or, or magnitude, right? So it's a highly, you know, highly positively correlated. That's somewhat, when I think of correlation within markets, like correlation of one within markets is unhealthy. Right. Exactly. It usually happens when when prices are falling because everything is like being derated at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, it's somewhat rare for price, for correlation to be high when everything's going up in price. But the way I would the way I interpret this is that that is reflective of, in my opinion, more speculative you know, a price move, or you could say that, yeah, like, I mean, if you just think of the, the math, right? I mean, I, and, and hopefully this isn't like too um, convoluted, but let's say like before COVID, if your, you know, if your mortgage was $1,000 a month at a 4% mortgage rate, right? What, what the market effectively did was it says like, okay, you took the mortgage rate from 4% to like two and a half percent. I'm still gonna demand that you pay that $1,000 a month and the only way to make that right is to raise the price of the house. Mm -hmm. And so like home prices of, you know, basically went up as a function of that discount rate coming down, right? Similar to what we were talking about with like equity valuations earlier in the conversation, it's the same feature, right? Like the market basically just reset the value of the, of the asset as a function of the new discount rate that was then assumed to kind of be the forever discount rate. And so, to me, that's unhealthy because, you know, yeah. I think we would probably agree that like the fundamentals in the southeast are different than the fundamentals in the southwest and, and northeast and, and whatnot. And you should have, you know, um, you should have more disparity in home prices as a function of regional fundamentals. And that's not that's not what's reflected in um, the price environment. It's 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 it looks more like it was a speculative grab or you know, a speculative shift in asset prices not something that was, um, you know, driven by fundamentals. So, I, but my cyclical view is, I think, as you know, mortgage rates go up, what we'll find is that some regions um, were pu purely speculative, and they'll probably um, fall in price, uh, and some regions uh, will hold up better in price because there is some, 
you know, um, you know, fundamental case for prices to be, uh, you know, it's like maybe it's like no income state, you know, in, no income tax states or whatever it is. Like there are things that are happening in those regions and, and prices will be supported. Um, you know, but that just that creates a that creates a housing sector sort of environment that's um, uh, doesn't have to be like anything like 2008. That's not that's not really the, the, the message here, but it will be cyclically soft like it will you know the the rate of change in it will slow yeah. you'll see you know more likely to see some um you know, kind of negative prints along the way um whether that be in price i think more likely in activity maybe a little less likely in prices although in some regions uh you'll see you know you'll see you know kind of downticks in price at the national level it seems that seems somewhat unlikely to me um based on what we know right now so I'm just going to ask you to kind of wrap up here in closing thoughts, you know, walk us through. I mean, we've talked about a whole bunch of different things, right? Housing, real rates, inflation, the Fed, structural growth, all that kind of good stuff. Walk us through like over the next year, what is your if you had to, if you had to sum up your view just in general on markets, like how would you do that? And then any recommendations that you have in terms of plays that you're kind of thinking about or, or how are you in general without getting you know, super into the nitty gritty or specifics. How are you kind of positioning yourself for the coming year? I think it's going to be a difficult year for making money. I mean, I think that's like in a nutshell, that's it. And so, I mean, it's, it's going to be more volatile. Uh, it's going to be, um, you know, you're going to be, you know, it's still a little bit of like range. You just, you have to deal with more uncertainties, right? I mean, the, the Fed is draining the punch bowl, you know, growth is slowing and we're sort of left with like, okay, like, you know, where will things end up? And, and we, I just, I don't know if we, we know for sure, right? We're gonna, you kind of have to, you know, um, so some people can stomach that volatility. A lot of people can't, and the people who can't, you know, kind of, you know, um, move out of the market and that's what creates, you know, or, or exacerbates that volatility. I, I think that will probably be with us for, for most of the year, at least through the first, you know, few rate hikes, um, you know, and, and probably into at least, I would think that the third quarter of this year is sort of my best guess. Um, uh, and I think that that's just a function of, you know, the stage of the cycle, right? You kind of go through these periods where, you know, we had a pretty good, you know, two to three year, you know, or, you know, kind of two to three year period before, um, or I should say two year period before 2020. And, 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 you know, and then we had a speed bump and then, you know, things kind of like really went into overdrive. Right. Uh, and, you know, now we just have to digest and, you know, you're going through some, you know, cyclical softness at the same time that the Fed is, um, you know, no longer your friend. So I think it's an environment for, you know, um, and then you want to kind of get into the portfolio decisions, like much higher cash levels uh, in general. Um, you know, and, and to me, it's not that cash is like some sexy investment. It, I think it's a little bit what you alluded to in, you know, you talked about like multi-asset. Like if you think of like markets as being like an, you know, on the efficient frontier, you're familiar with the efficient frontier, right? Like, you know, you have, you know, return and, and risk. The efficient frontier kind of got pretty flat, meaning like risky assets, the expected return on risky assets because of their valuation basically converged to the expected return on cash, which is just a really low level. And, and now the Fed is raising the return on cash, right? Because as they hike rates, and that just will attract capital back to the zero vol asset, um, but, you know, it's not that cash is like some like sexy investment. It's more just a function of like having um, capital dry powder to to buy something when it goes down. Right. I mean, in, in price and, and redeploy, um, you know, that way. So I think you want to hold you know, pretty high cash levels. Not everybody's going to, you know, short, 
markets, but you know, for me, like you know, I basically you know kind of have you know, higher cash levels, and I'm running a much more balanced you know book than I you know, than I was you know a year ago this time. Meaning, uh, you know, like in in terms of net exposure, you know, net exposure is probably more like you know thirty percent than seventy percent, right? I mean, you just you just right. you're expecting that you're going to have more dispersion and and the you know the opportunity to kind of play both sides of the market. Uh, and then you know you can see from some of the other tables and and things that we discussed. I mean, some parts of the market will uh, will go down because you know they're cyclically vulnerable. Uh, and you you know you can you can you know if you're you know more aggressive, you know kind of type of investor, then you can kind of take advantage of that. Um, so I look, I think the name of the game is is de- is defense this year for you know most of the year and for the time being. Um, you know, certainly prices can you know fall and market prices can fall enough that you know, um, expectations have, have changed in a meaningful way and, and can be attractive. But I, I think we also just need to respect time. Time in this case is, you know, kind of getting through some of that profit growth cycle, you know, aspect and, and, and having a handle on, um, you know, having a better handle on how, how weak that will be. Like right now, we think it will be a little bit weak, but you want to make sure that it doesn't, you know, kind of manifest itself into something more, you know, significant. And unfortunately, the only, you know, that's just, we have to wait and, you know, to, we can have views and opinions about it, but a lot of things can kind of influence that. Um, so I think it's, uh, I think it's, you know, it's kind of not a time to be, you know, um, Taking a lot of aggressive. Risk. Yeah. You want to, you know, kind of be de-risked and, and patient, I think is the, is the right approach. And I'm kind of speaking of very general terms, given, you know, the broad audience that you, um, that you have, but I, I think it's, uh, I think that's the best approach um, at, at this point in time. And that's sage advice. Um, Mr. Blond, uh, if people want to find out more about you, the work that you do, I know you've got a great Substack, which was super helpful for me in just preparing for this interview, um, or, or Twitter, like what's the best way to find out more about you or, or kind of the work that you do? Yeah, no, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think the, the easy path is Twitter. I mean, that's you know, kind of where I spend most of my days. The Substack for me is, you know, where, you know, I'll write occasionally about, um, you know, some meteor topics and, and try to get into things in a little bit more detail um, and, you know, and, and concepts and, and, you know, more than 120 characters. Uh, but, you know, the, the work is all chart heavy. I'm a big believer, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. Hopefully, you know, the picture, you know, tells most of the story uh, and, the, you know, the adjoining, you know, text comment or... Uh, write-up is 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 kind of just giving a little bit more detail um, or my own opinion and, and thought about something. But um, yeah, the Twitter handle, which you already mentioned, is is the best place to find me. And from there, you can you can get to the Substack. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Blonde, thank you so much for coming on, enlightening everyone, for teaching me something about Quentin Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs that I did not know. Which is that <laughs> it is a a movie about finance and markets. Uh, you learn something every day. But This has been a ton of fun, so thanks for coming on. We'll have to do it again soon. That's great. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Cheers. 